Well, I feel a bit like I should introduce myself this morning. My name is Guy McCaslin, and uh, I am the pastor here at Applewood Community Church, though you wouldn't know it from recent history. Uh, not preached for the past three Sundays. It is wonderful to be back with you, my Applewood family. Great thanks again to uh, Lee for a wonderful two-week series, uh, to my brother Rick for jumping in last minute and uh, being so uh, so grateful to do that. I appreciate both of you and your willingness to fill in. Thanks to all of you for your prayers. You know, many of you, I was with uh, Mom uh, most of this last week. Her battle with dementia is, is not getting any easier, but thankfully she is in a safe place. Um, Hard for her to understand that she's in a safe place. Um, boy, how like that is for us in our, our walk with Christ. You know, sometimes it's difficult to look at our circumstances and to see that where we are is where we need to be in terms of God's care and in uh, his safekeeping over our lives. So there were there were lots of of lessons this week, the, the medical world calls what my mom lives with an altered state of reality. I, I was thinking, is that something new? <laughs> That's pretty much where I'm at every day. And can I get some of that medication? <laughs> altered state of reality. Story for you that uh, I think is uh, kind of appropriate to that. This uh, will register pretty high, I think, on the are you kidding meter. Adam Hernandez, 15 years old, a freshman at Shorewood High School in Wisconsin, was arrested, handcuffed, and booked on a charge of theft after a friend let him have his lunch. I was hoping somebody would say that. The friend was part of a free lunch program, and Hernandez wasn't. So eating the $2.60 chicken nugget meal was stealing, school officials said. And they called the police. But the police chief finally decided to drop the charges just before the boy went to trial. The school principal agreed with the decision. It shouldn't have gone this far, said the police chief. There are other means and methods to handle this kind of situation. When asked whether his officers should have made the arrest in the first place, the chief, the, the, uh, the police, chief police said uh, the arrest was perhaps a bit over the top. <laughs> yeah, you think maybe so. And then uh, this story that I read in the uh, Portland paper this last week. Taliban militants in northern Afghanistan stoned a young couple to death for adultery. The weekend stoning appeared to arise from an affair between a married man and a single woman. The woman was 20 and engaged to another man. Her lover was 28 years old. He left his wife to run away with her, and the two had holed up in a friend's house for five days. They were discovered by Taliban operatives, and they were stoned to death in front of a crowd of about 150 men. That registers pretty high on the 
are you kidding me meter as well. Does it not? And yet the emotions are different. One is sort of a, that's ridiculous. The other is more of a, oh my. And I read a story like that and my response is just this sense of, really? How could they do that? Who do they think they are? And then, in all honesty, my next thought goes something like this. Well, of course, it's the Taliban. Bunch of mindless murderers. And then I recall that Leviticus 20.10 states that if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. Restated in Deuteronomy chapter 22. The man is found sleeping with another man's wife. Both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. It's a very powerful exhortation, don't you think? You must purge the evil from Israel. God, God took the sin in the lives of his people with utmost Seriousness, apparently. And it's the sentiment that is behind that exhortation that characterizes, or at least in part, one of the categories of the Psalms that we may find a bit more challenging. I should probably remind you, we're studying the Psalms this summer. I've been gone long enough that you probably don't remember that. Uh, But... But we've studied a few together, and uh, we're coming back to it this morning. It's a category that is referred to by some people as the imprecatory psalms. To imprecate means to invoke evil upon or to, to curse. Now, don't forget that the psalms as a whole, we have said from the very beginning, were used often in worship By the people of Israel, they were sung, they were recited, they were prayed. And and knowing that that is true might give us a little pause when we consider the the rather R-rated content of some of the imprecatory psalms. Uh, They they certainly fly in the face of, of what we would typically understand as the, the Christian response to, to sin, particularly to, to, to oppression and, and evil. So, I want to invite you this morning to stand with me. We're going to read the first nine verses of Psalm 35. We want to ask some questions and then make just a, a few observations that I, I think, I trust, will, will help to, uh, to bring the, the meaning of these psalms uh, into our lives, I think, in, a, in a, uh, a beneficial daily sort of a way. So let's read these words together, shall we? Contend, Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take up shield and armor. Arise and come to my aid. Brandish spear and javelin against those who pursue me. Say to me, I am your salvation. 
May those who seek my life be disgraced and put to shame. May those who plot my ruin be turned back in dismay. May they be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. May their path be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. Since they hid their net for me without cause and without cause dug a pit for me. May ruin overtake them by surprise. May the net they hid entangle them. May they fall into the pit to their ruin. Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord and delight in his salvation. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Go ahead and be seated. Probably use this on a daily basis in your personal devotions, don't you? Personal prayer life. You know, I think there's the one thing that it does for us is, is in those times when we do feel some of those heartfelt sentiments towards others that we would classify as probably not as Christ-like as they ought to be. Well, at least we're in good company with the psalmist. So, what do you think? Fairly straightforward language, yes? And, and this is a tame one compared to... Uh, some of the other imprecatory psalms. Um, <laughs> I like what one commentator says. Psalm 35 falls into the category of psalms known as prayers for deliverance. It contains extensive descriptions of the attacks of the enemies, punctuated with personal pleas for deliverance. Yeah, I'll say, get them, God. Brandish spear and javelin. Those weren't play toys. May they be like chaff before the wind. The wind blows the chaff away and it's never seen again. May their path be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. That's not a friendly image. May they fall into the pit to their ruin. Not gentle language. It is the language of get them, Lord, and don't go easy on them. Of course, you never feel that way. I never feel that way. And so so we can't relate, but let's try Turn to your neighbor and ask them this question. Should we pray these prayers? See what your neighbor thinks. Should we pray these prayers? Ask somebody near you. This was read during the first meeting of the first Congress in Philadelphia, September 1774. Wow. (laughs) Get them, God. Uh, yeah, maybe so. Are, are you willing? <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. <laughs> of course, this may be the question where nobody wants to answer. <laughs> Boy. It's, it's in God's Word. That makes it right. Yeah. Okay, what do you think? This is one of those where your neighbor simply says yes or no. No commentary. Yes or no. All right, what do you think? What do you think? I see that hand back there. 
David says, no, because you're supposed to love your enemies. <laughs> nice. Alfredo. <laughs> In relationship to you, my brother. So, no, no. <laughs> yeah. Seems like a good prayer. <laughs> it's good. I like your hermeneutic, Alfredo. Very good. All right. Doug. My wife agrees, and I agree with her that yes, you do pray it. Okay. One of the verses in the Psalms we sang today that we didn't sing is when your when your enemy presses in heart, do not fear the battle belongs to the Lord. Ah. Okay. Okay, okay. And then perhaps, and maybe we'll get to this, what do we do in the meantime? <laughs> Lord, I'm waiting for you to get them. <laughs> what do I do in the meantime? Zach. Yeah, uh, hmm. <laughs> That's okay. Okay, uh, I had something. Well, I'm getting older. I'm, <laughs> I'm 73 now. Brother. Been dealing with it. Vengeance is mine. Okay. I will repay, says Yahweh. Now, okay. uh, in the Old Testament, Jesus said, it was said, said to them of old time, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Mm-hmm. They were allowed to do something we're not allowed to do. So let's get with the program. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord Yahweh, Jehovah. Okay. Hallelujah. That's it in a nutshell. All right. That's the quote of the morning. Zach says, let's get with the program. <laughs> Quote of the morning. Okay. Anyone else want to add to the prime? <laughs> it's catching. <laughs> okay. Okay. Good. I like that. I like that. All right. Diane. That's a good insight. Yeah. And, and, and perhaps a, a, a caveat on that would be it's a good thing that we're not judge and jury because unlike God, who we are made in the image of, he is perfect in his judgments, you know, and, and knows the motivation of the human heart. Absolutely. Yeah. Got to wrestle. Got to wrestle with it. Okay. Okay, good. Doug. I think one of the things to take into account is that the, the writer, or in the Old Testament, we don't have a very well-developed view of hereafter. Mm-hmm. And so when they're calling for, the writer's calling for bad things to happen, and judgment, 
Excellent point. Excellent point. Excellent point. Yeah, yeah. Can't wait for judgment. It's got to it's happen in here and now where I can see it. That's it. Right, right. There you go. Okay. Okay, good, good. All right. Lee. Ah. In the Old Testament, that's praying at those people. Okay. And Jesus calls us to pray for those people. Okay. I don't know whether you've ever had an experience of something unjust happening to hmm. you and praying for that person. Hmm. It hmm. changes your attitude completely hmm. about that person. Okay. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. All right. Good stuff. Good stuff. Let's uh, let's go a little further. Um, this This is one of those tensions. That scripture creates that we need to be honest with and we need to wrestle with uh, no quick, easy, pat answers, but but maybe some suggestions that will will move us in a direction that that brings this a little closer to to where we live. Um, I'm going to ask you to stand again. We're going to read from Matthew chapter five. And uh, you've probably heard these words before as well. And uh, if this creates some kind of a collision in your mind, uh, may it be so. Let's read together. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Once again, brothers and sisters... Not only is this the word of the Lord, these are the words of our Lord Jesus. Thanks be to God. Okay, you can sit down again. I want to suggest to you this morning that that this is an example. And again, you know, you you are free to disagree. And of course, that makes you wrong, but you're free to disagree. This is an example of what, what I call in sort of my my paradigm, the Trump of grace, the trump of grace, both statements, the statements, the harsh statements, the, the, the R-rated content in the imprecatory Psalms, they are significant. They are, they are true statements. Both those statements, as well as the words of Jesus, are God's word. They are inspired. They are significant. But in the same way that grace has trumped the law in our understanding of how to live as the people of God, so too, I believe that the words of Jesus trump the words of the psalmist when we consider instruction for our personal lives, personal application, personal prayer life. Let, let me explain what I mean by that. At least I hope I can. It's, uh, it's one of those things where, you know, you hear yourself say it and you think, mm, I think the ice is getting a little thin here. 
Um, but, but I'm going to go there anyway and, and just see what you think. For the Jew in the Old Testament, one of the things that we know is that the law represented the holiness of Yahweh. The law represented the life that Yahweh required, and it was a way to a life of blessing. The law was given so that the people of God would get a glimpse of the holiness of God and how to live their lives in such a way that God was honored and they would be blessed. To live according to the law of God was in the mind of the Old Testament Jew a righteous life. To give attention to the law, to make the law important in one's life, to obey that law meant that a person was righteous because they lived according to God's law. A person was godly because they kept the law. Now, we're familiar with those terms, righteousness and, and, and godly. Those are terms that we use, and yet I think we, we use them with a, with a different understanding. To live apart from the law was to be an unrighteous person, was to be an ungodly person. The ungodly were people that had often been purged from the land by God's instruction. The ungodly stood against God. And to oppose and to oppress God's people, of whom the psalmist was one, was to oppose righteousness. So when you oppose me, God's person, you are opposing righteousness. You are opposing God, and therefore I call down the judgment of God, the triumph of God, the wrath of God, to to be my defense, because God's people are righteous because they keep the law. Are you with me so far? Make sense? Okay. The Old Testament Jew understood righteousness as coming through the law. They did not have the benefit of what I'm going to call the whole revelation of righteousness given to us in the New Testament, especially the teachings of Paul, Romans and Galatians, where we understand that, that the keeping of the law, Paul says clearly, the keeping of the law didn't make anyone righteous. It is God who makes people righteous. And righteousness is given as a result of one's faith through faith and belief in God. That is what Paul teaches clearly in Romans chapter 4. You may remember that he uses the example of Abraham who lived even before the law was given. Abraham, we are told, believed God. He trusted and obeyed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. The idea is it was, it was put into the account. It was marked as righteous. And we understand that righteousness in New Testament theology, comes because of what Christ has done for us. You talked about atonement. Did you talk about imputation at all? You remember Lee's conversation about imputation. The imputation of Christ's righteousness is placed upon us. 
It is a gift from God. It is not anything that we were. It is not anything that we do. It is something that is given to us so that the righteousness of Christ becomes our righteousness. And so when when Paul talks about Abram, who's living thousands of years before the cross, being credited with righteousness, we understand that he's credited with that righteousness based on what's going to happen on the cross which is a very future event at that point. Make sense so far? Getting a little cloudy. Okay. Based upon what God did in Jesus and what what moves a holy God to grant righteousness to sinful, unholy people. Simply put, I think it's like this. Living in the age of grace that we do. That is, living on this side of the cross, looking back at the cross, understanding what the cross was about, understanding what was done on the cross. Living on this side of the cross, righteousness is granted to us based upon what God does in Christ. We, we understand that. What we do, if there's anything that we do, is we believe and we trust God that it is true. It is the only thing that we can do. I mean, we, we understand that salvation is by, by grace. It is by faith alone. So lucky day. We, 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 we rejoice in that. We, we revel in that. We understand that righteousness is a gift from God in Christ to those who believe in God's gift. And all that to say this, the psalmist prayed out of his understanding of righteousness, Righteousness for him was keeping the law of God. That makes me a righteous person. And how dare people would stand against me because I stand for God. There is a sense of that. We pray. We pray out of our understanding of righteousness. And the scripture is clear that we are not righteous for anything that we do. We are righteous Because God has chosen to put the righteousness of Christ upon us. Make sense? So you've got got two different views of righteousness and and what it means to be righteous. And 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 I think that that means that we pray with humility and a keen sense... And this is maybe, dare I say this, this is maybe what we sometimes see lacking in the, in the, the tone of some of these harsh statements in the Psalms. Not completely. And, and by the way, the imprecatory Psalms are, are few. Uh, there are maybe a, a dozen of them. And they're not all just, you know, complete uh, God pour down, you know, fire and brimstone on people kind of a thing. So, so they're a small slice of the Psalms, but they're there. But I, I think that perhaps the difference is, is that we come to God because we are looking back on the cross, recognizing the price of righteousness. It was nothing to do with anything that we did. It was God's gift to us. And I think what that ought to do is it ought to bring to us a keen sense that, that were it not for the grace of God, Remembering, of course, as we say many times, that grace is always a mystery. Were it not for the grace of God, we would be just as wretched as those on whom we see 
sin so clearly. Make sense? Okay. I'm glad you get it. I'm not sure I do. Um, so, so how do we use these imprecatory psalms in our own worship and, and, and prayer lives? I, I think I, I love what Doug said and, and, and so many of the expressions of truth that came out of, yes, these are God's word. Because they're God's word, because they were used in worship and they were part of the prayer life of the psalms, you know, the, there, there is a sense in, in which we can pray them and we can use them and we understand that, that there is there's a whole lot that can go on here in this life to, to prepare an individual for, for eternity, if you will. Uh, but I, I think that there, there has to be a, a check, if I can say it that way, a check in our, in our spirits that, that is driven by a sense of humility and a sense of, wow, as we look back at the cross and what God did for us. Okay? So, Three, three short words. Um, how do we use these imprecatory psalms in our own worship and prayer lives? Three short words, and yet I think just so incredibly difficult uh, to live out. Hatred of sin. Hatred of sin. Easy enough, right? Let's go. Hatred of sin. You see, what drives the passion that we read in words like this in the imprecatory psalms, the passion comes from what I think is an intense hatred of sin because what the psalmist did see clearly is that sin is ultimately against God. That's Psalm 51, you know, against you and you only have I sinned. Well, if that's true for me, then it's true for the other person that sins. Sin is against God. And so there is a passion that drives that. I think we need to... We need to bring to our prayer life and our personal devotional life and our commitment to following after God a humility in how we pray towards others because we have an understanding that ultimately all sin is against God. Again, I think that that here grace is trumps law. Grace trumps law. However, and hear this, I do think we need to hate sin. We need to hate sin. And I'll be honest with you, there's plenty of times in my life when I don't hate sin. We need to, we need to cultivate a hatred of sin that flows out of our lives because we recognize the cost and the destruction of sin. And I think that's where our understanding of what Jesus is teaching and calling us to as his followers, that's where the life of Christ begins to shape our thinking and our understanding of this. Isn't it fascinating and, and, and we've talked about this before, that, that the people that Jesus had the harshest words for were those who kept the law. And those who were so often caught up in sin and were so quickly and, and, and blatantly identified as sinful in that society, Jesus loved and even blessed but he hated their sin. 
because he knew the cost and he knew the destruction of that sin. I think far too often we may, or I may, you can put the shoe on if it fits, I coddle sin and I excuse sin. We need to learn that from, we need to learn that, that, that the passion of the imprecatory Psalms that ought to fuel our lives is that hatred of sin is the only appropriate response of God's people. That probably sounds pretty narrow, but it's biblical. God hates sin. His people ought to hate sin. God sees the destruction that sin creates. We need to see the destruction that sin creates. God does not sin. We ought to be a people who strive with all of our energy not to sin. So let me offer just a couple of suggestions on on how I think we can begin to cultivate a hatred of sin, which is, again, bottom line of the imprecatory psalms. Alfredo's raising a hand back there. I see that hand. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's First Peter. Same idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, yes, but we could we could extrapolate and say that it's 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 out of the holiness of God. That, that his perfection in all that he does, in his judgments, his decisions, his actions, it's out of his holiness that his, that his perfection flows. Make sense? Good question, though. Okay, uh, quickly, a uh, couple of suggestions. First suggestion would be this, and, and, and you'll go, duh. Bear with me. Recognize, recognize the ultimate cost of sin. The ultimate cost of sin is Jesus' death on the cross. That's the ultimate cost of sin. There are a lot of costs to sin, but but ultimately, Jesus died on the cross. We dare not minimize that cost by thinking about sin casually, by treating sin casually in our lives. If there was any other way to provide salvation for people, don't you think that an omniscient God would have thought of it and implemented it? Jesus' death on the cross is the only way. And the cost was great. God did not do something. My brothers and sisters, God did not do something nice for decent people. On the cross. Okay? Got to check our thinking sometimes. We'd never say that. But, but, but I know, at least for me, sometimes the way I, I see sin or the way that I treat sin, 
sort of belies that sentiment that God just did something nice for, for, for decent people. He did the unthinkable, the unimaginable for desperately sinful people. Now, you may not think of yourself as desperately sinful compared to some of the really nasty folks that you know. But that's the wrong standard. The suffering and the agony of Jesus dying a horrifying death on the cross is something that we need to think of often. God did what was necessary, and he did it for me, and he did it for you. And sin is hugely offensive to God, and it cost him dearly to make us his children. Trust me, he got no good deals on any of us. The cost was the same for every single person. Sin is... Is hugely offensive to God, my brothers and sisters. And that's what we need to hear coming out of the imprecatory Psalms. That sin is hated by God. Recognize the ultimate cost of sin. A second suggestion, recognize that hatred of sin must start with the sin in my life. I'd much rather deal with the sin in your life. But hatred of sin has to start in my life. Your hatred of sin has to start with the sin in your life. Because I will not properly hate the sin in your life until I properly hate the sin, its consequences, and its destruction in my life. That's precisely what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 7 when when he speaks about judging others. We are quick to identify a sin in someone else, and, and that's the speck in their eye. And we've got this beam hanging out of our eye, and we don't even see it. You know, That's just incredible language that Jesus uses there. We must open our lives to the searchlight, the intense searing light of the Spirit of God, even upon the smallest seemingly harmless sin in our lives. We must not allow ourselves to go down the small sin path. It's just a little sin. That's like having just a little cancer. How convinced would you be of the worth and the credibility of your doctor if he says, don't worry about it, it's just a little cancer? Really? But we do that. Again, we don't say it. But we do it in terms of, of our thinking and our actions. Just a little sin. How bad could it be? Well, how many of us are willing to have just a little cancer? Though the sin seems small, it is the nature of sin to grow. And that is a lesson that James 1 teaches very clearly. Sin will grow. Sin always grows. And something else that we must remember related to that, I am capable of any sin. Any sin. I remember when our kids were young, seminary days. I've told some of you before, this was an aha moment. Kelsey, when she was just a little girl, Kelsey didn't like anybody but her mom. And that included me. She didn't like me. That's okay, because I didn't like her either. She didn't like her brothers. They didn't like her. You know, I mean, she was, 
she was the poster child for mommy's girl. And sometimes even mommy was really weary of the love that this child had for her. Well, mommy in the seminary days worked our last year of seminary. She worked two mornings a week in, a, in an inner city school. And we, we were able to, to schedule my classes around her work schedule. That meant that I got to stay home with Kelsey and her three big brothers. And I'll tell you what, 80% of the time that we had together was ruined by the fact that she was a wretched little child. I mean, you wouldn't know that now. She's just this beautiful, delightful young woman. Um, I can remember one day, here was the aha moment. She was just cranky and nasty and ugly, and, and I couldn't calm her down, and, and, I, and I fixed her bottle and was giving her for, or trying to give her to her, and, and nothing would make her happy. And, and in a moment of absolute frustration, I threw that bottle across the room. Plastic bottle that fortunately didn't break, but the top came off and just mess everywhere. I don't think I even ever told my wife this. I'll bet you my oldest three sons remember that moment. It was ugly. And I remember this thought. I understand why parents abuse their children. And that thought scared me. Because I wanted to put my hands around that cute little throat and make her stop screaming. Brothers and sisters, we are capable of any sin. Let's not kid ourselves. And we don't wake up some morning and decide to go out and be a mass murderer. Where do those things start? They start with the little seed that we think was just a little sin in our lives. Got to give attention to the little sin because we are capable of any sin. Last suggestion quickly. Ask the Spirit of God. The gift of the Spirit. Luke reminds us that just as earthly fathers know how to give good gifts to their children, so does our Heavenly Father know how to give the gift of the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. The gift of His counsel, the gift of His insight, the gift of His compassion, the gift of His presence in our lives. Ask God and the Spirit of God to give you eyes to see the damning destruction that sin creates in your life and in the lives of those around you. And I think this is the piece that we add to that flaming passion of the imprecatory psalms that is the result of our understanding of grace on this side of the cross. This is where grace, again, trumps law in a big way. We don't have to to hate people who are held in bondage to sin. We don't even have to hate people who, who sin against us and hurt us. We don't have to judge them. We don't have to assign them to certain categories. That's God's responsibility. We leave their judgment and their lives to the one who always judges correctly. And may God cultivate in us an ability to hate the sin. And not hate the sin so much because of its effect on me. Because the Spirit gives me the eyes to see how it's racking the life of the person who's sinning. There is where grace comes into play in a huge way. That old adage of hate the sin and love the sinner. It's just a whole lot easier to hate both. Praise team, why don't you come on up and prepare to lead us. I was... I was moved yesterday, just in quick conclusion, at the memorial service.
for Bill Roberts. Some of you might have remembered Bill, Bill and Laura. Laura was in a, in a wheelchair for many years, and, and uh, she died a little over a year ago. Well, some of you know that, that Bill, just about three weeks ago, died as a result of a drowning accident. Um, Bill had been drinking, was probably drunk when he died. And I asked Kathy if I could share this, so I have her permission. I was so touched yesterday. When Cappy came up and shared about Bill, probably Steve and Cappy know Bill as well as anybody in our congregation. Bill was a broken man. Bill lived a rough life. Bill was addicted to alcohol and who knows what else. And Cappy shared in tears the sorrow that she had that she had never been able to see Bill become free from that sin and that bondage in his life. The light went on and I thought, wow, that's where grace trumps law. That God gives us the ability to see the destruction and the pain that sin always causes. And he gives us a longing to see those who are around us.